The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences. Today, we are focused on oil as Brent nears $95 a barrel. No better guest to discuss that with than Mike Worth, Chevron chairman and CEO, joins us now. Mike, it's such a pleasure to see you. Thanks for joining. Alex, it's good to be here. Okay, $100 oil. Is that going to happen? Sure looks like it. We're certainly moving in that direction. Uh, the uh, momentum, uh, you know, supply is tightening. Inventories are, are drawing. These things happen gradually. You can see it building. And so I think the, uh, you know, the, the trends would suggest that we're, we're, we're certainly on our way. We're getting close. Mike, good morning. It's Guy in London. What impact do you think 100 bucks a barrel will have on the U.S. economy? What impact will it have on the global economy? Well, certainly those are higher prices than uh, you know we, we tend to see out over the long term, and so I think it will have uh, some effect on the economy. But you know we, we've had relatively higher oil prices here now for for most of this year, and certainly all of last year. The recession that everyone's been talking about hasn't arrived, and uh, and so I think the underlying uh, drivers of the economy in the U.S. and, and frankly globally remain pretty healthy. So uh, I think it's a drag on. The the economy, but uh, uh, one that thus far, I think the economy has been able to, to tolerate. Do you, have you adjusted your price deck? <laughs> Meaning, that's my question, being like, are these higher prices sustainable for the long term? Yeah, we, we take a very long-term view on supply, demand, policy, technology. We haven't changed our long-term price, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we really don't change that very often and, and not in response to what our short-term... And we, we've been in a volatile market really going back to the pandemic when things came down, the recovery when it was high the war. Uh, so th- this has been a, a period of time where prices have been unpredictable yep. and, and volatile and not what you would call mid-cycle. Mike, if, if I worked for you, if I worked for Mike Worth and I worked for Chevron, would this be my cue to say, Mike, can I have a pay rise, please? Well, we're, we're certainly seeing, I think you're making reference to what's going on in, in different parts of the world. We're seeing organized labor, uh, you know, in uh, many different industries now, uh, kind of assertively uh, step forward and say, look, we, uh, we want to be 
compensated. We see the inflation in the economy, and uh, we've seen companies recover. We've uh, uh, had a very strong pay program last year for our employees. We try to stay very competitive, mm-hmm. and uh, and I would expect we'll continue to do so. That is Guy's way of getting into the strike action that's happening in Australia with Gorgon and Wheatstone. So, so far, cargos have not yet been impacted. You're using some non-union workers, right? Is there a point where that would change? Well, we certainly hope that uh, what we'll see is uh, a negotiated agreement. Uh, others in Australia have reached agreement with these unions. We've been at the table bargaining in good faith, and uh, and that's our desired outcome. That said, uh, when we face potential strikes anywhere in the world, we have to prepare to maintain operations. Uh, our products are vital to the global economy and the flow of those commodities, particularly LNG, in a world as we've seen last year where it's important to uh, uh, keep economies going, not just in the region in Australasia, but also also in Europe, uh, that's our responsibility. And so we do prepare to maintain operations even during an industrial action. Um, and, and thus far, we've been able to successfully do so in Australia. Do you think if I'm sitting here in Europe, I should worry about what's happening here? Is this going to be a problem when we get to winter, do you think, Mike? Well, last winter, Europe came through better than I think most thought, Guy. Now, inventories were high going into the winter because Russian gas had been flowing in. Uh, Industrial demand really came off, and then it was a relatively mild winter. We certainly can't count on all of those things happening again, but gas inventories in Europe are pretty pretty strong right now relative to history. And so I would say Europe is set up uh, much better than it was last year. Uh, The weather is always difficult to predict, but uh, I I feel like Europe is in uh, in about as good a place as it could hope to be uh, at this point in time. That's one of the weird things about looking at China growth, because obviously Europe wants China growth, but the energy sector probably doesn't want China growth if you're in Europe because of the the demand pull. what, What are you noticing in China, whether it's LNG or oil demand pull? Well, it's been gradual. It's been slower than people expected it mm-hmm. to be, but it, it is coming back. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen crude oil prices tightening. Is, is that inventory restocking, do you think, or is that end user demand? It's always a little bit hard to tell. The data okay. out of China isn't exactly uh, as transparent as it is in, in other parts of the world, but I think it's probably uh, indicative of an economy that is, is finding some traction and is, is moving forward. Uh, we're going to see record oil demand this year, all-time record demand, right up a couple million barrels a day versus the prior year, it'll grow again in, in the year ahead. And so uh, as long as the global economy stays relatively healthy, demand for these products uh, steadily marches forward. Mike, uh, you, you've mentioned inflation a couple of times already in the conversation. Are you still seeing inflation? Are you starting to see deflation in certain areas? What does the cost side of the equation look like? Yeah, so we've certainly planned for inflation. What we're experiencing is consistent with how we laid out our budgets uh, for this year. I wouldn't say we're seeing deflation uh, anywhere in a meaningful way. We may be seeing disinflation, right? So uh, a reduction in the rate of inflation. And it tends to be isolated uh, to certain parts of our supply chain, certain geographies a little bit more than something you would describe as widespread. I I think wage pressure is, is pretty broadly distributed. Other things in our supply Supply chains uh, tend to be focused in areas where there's a lot of activity, like West Texas and, and the Permian Basin, which has seen a little more pressure than some other parts of the world. Yeah, so t- to that point, can you increase, if you take U.S. shale for a second, the Permian, can you increase productivity enough to offset those costs when a lot of your spending in the next, say, 10 years will be 
in U.S. shale? That is the big question right now that we're, we're confronting as we're putting our plans together going forward. Uh, thus far, that has been the case. And in fact, productivity at a time when we saw lower inflation was marching forward much faster than, than costs were, which is why we saw cost of production coming down. I think those are coming into more of a balance today. And I think the, uh, the forward view, uh, the question is, can you continue to move up that productivity uh, ramp and uh, offset inflation or not? I think it's early to say. The one thing that is uh, sometimes not talked about in this discussion, we've seen a lot of productivity gains on, on drilling and completions. Uh, we're still only recovering about 10% of the molecules that are mm-hmm. in place. If we can improve recoveries, uh, that changes the entire economic equation in a very profound way. We're working hard on that. We expect to see recoveries improve over time. So it's another leg of that equation, which is not necessarily uh, productivity on the activity, but it is on the recovery and the so economic equation. What is that? Is that three plus mile laterals? Is it going to be just different types of enhanced oil recovery? Like, what's the super super magic sauce for? Yeah, you? we're working on a lot of different things. We're certainly drilling You're not longer. Tell me. We're drilling longer <laughs> laterals. We're working on different completion mm-hmm. technology to create different fracture geometry, so you can get more flow. Does that all cost more money though to do? Too? It does, and so that's why you, you've got to evaluate the economics of this. We're working on uh, chemicals that can enhance recovery in terms of the the, the interaction right down at a molecular level, uh, and all these things you have to you have to pilot them in a lab, you have to pilot them in the field, you have to understand if you can scale them up, and if they make economic sense. That's been the history of our industry. The technology tends to solve these things. We've got a lot of smart people in our company and in this industry, and uh, a lot of incentive when you know where those molecules are to figure out how to get them to flow in a way that's economic. I, I, I said to Alex this morning, Mike, that, that she wasn't allowed to use any technical jargon. I think you guys just about skirted around what? it no, in that part of the conversation. <laughs> you were fine. You were fine. You get a pass on that one. Mike, you, you talk about the fact that you've got lots of smart people. Do you have lots of smart lawyers? Um, one of the things that Alex and I were kicking around before we spoke to you this morning was what is happening with this California case and the fact that increasingly it looks like climate change is going to be litigated. Is litigation the right way of dealing with this? In a word, no, it's not. Uh, look, this is one of many such actions that uh, that we've seen over the years. Ironically, um, a number of them uh, on, filed on behalf of people who have actually profited from and encouraged energy development. Uh, climate change is a global issue. It calls for a coordinated global policy response, not piecemeal litigation that benefits attorneys and, uh, and politicians. So uh, we, we, will, we do have uh, smart lawyers. We will deal with the, the, the lawsuits. But more importantly, uh, we're working on finding ways to meet today's energy demand with energy that has less carbon intensity and still is affordable and reliable for the economy, even as we're investing in new technologies like renewable fuels and, and hydrogen and carbon capture to build a new energy system over time that is inherently yep. lower carbon. That's a constructive approach. That's where we're engaged. That's where most of my attention is focused. Okay, so to this point, you guys are going to become majority owner in what could be the world's largest hydrogen production and storage facility. There's that. You do have a huge carbon capture facility next to Gorgon in in Australia, et cetera. These things are huge, and they're expensive, and some have been around for a while. Hydrogen, though, is new. How do you know how much CapEx to realistically allocate before you're like, this is too big and it's a money suck? How do you see this playing out? Well, it requires a lot of judgment. Uh, You have to 
spend time, you have to really select. There are many opportunities out there. There's a yeah, lot so of- Yeah, so hydrogen, for example? There are a lot of places you could invest in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. You can invest in blue hydrogen. You can invest in green hydrogen. There's different carbon intensities. There's different technology pathways. Uh, we've got an entire organization that spends all its time working on the technical, the commercial, uh, the practical engineering realities of these things, and looks to find the best places to start. Uh, certainly in the US, we've seen uh, some policy through the um, IRA, which creates incentives. Those aren't intended to last forever, but they can help prime the pump as we bring the technology costs down. The project you referenced uh, is a project in Utah, which is actually very economic today. Uh, we'll take uh, surplus renewable power that comes from primarily from wind in the western US, and when it's more than the grid uh, needs, which happens during certain times of the day, we can use that to convert water into hydrogen. We'll store the hydrogen in underground caverns, and then at other times of the day when you want to bring that power back, we can bring the hydrogen out of the caverns. It can be put into a gas-fired power plant along with natural gas to produce lower carbon electricity. So it's an example of something that's technically feasible. The economics and the contract terms on it give us a return on our investment, and it's a platform from which we can then grow. So great to see you, Mike. We could go on forever, but we have to leave it there. You're also a busy man. Mike Worth, Chevron chairman and CEO, thank you so much. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.